Welcome to the Rock Quiz, or as it is known around here, the little-known and even less cared-for fact, Rock Quiz at Stomp. I'm your host, Mike McCarthy. This podcast is all about the history of rock and roll. We'll examine the roots, the stars, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the good, the bad, and the ugly from the animals to ZZ Top. The format is simple. We'll continue our rock version of a National Geographic trip. Going to go to Canada with a little-known and even less cared-for bunch of facts and quizzes about the Canadian rock scene. Then on to Cleveland and Detroit. And of course, eventually, we will wind up around the globe in England and Ireland before we conclude with these podcasts. So here we go with podcast number two. Time to cross the border into the great white north. Canada, eh? Time now for a little known and even less cared for fact rock quiz question. Why do the folks from South Park say that it's not a real country after all? A. Canadians are too damn nice to run a country. B. Anne Murray. C. As long as they say Charles is our king, they're still England West. D, any place that gave the world the mullet doesn't deserve to be a country. E, all of the above. Why do the folks from South Park say that it's not a real country after all? A, Canadians are too damn nice to run the country. B, Anne Murray. C, as long as they say Charles is our king, they're still England West. D, any place that gave the world the mullet doesn't deserve to be a country. E, all of the above. Ah, yes it is, all of the above. So let's talk about some of the great Canadian artists. Starting with Brian Adams. Brian Adams had a rather unusual career. He was born in Ontario. He had an incredible run of hits including Cuts Like a Knife, Summer of 69, Run to You in Heaven. He was the king of soundtracks in the 90s, landing on the charts with All for Love from The Three Musketeers. I finally found someone from The Mirror Has Two Faces, and everything I do, I do it for you from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This is your announcer saying, this is your announcer saying, the staff of this fine podcast have researched and vetted the little known and even less cared for facts using reference material provided by the Rolling Stone, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Motown Museum, numerous artists and label websites, Wikipedia, and personal remembrances by friends and relations. But since it has been known that the World Wide Web is perhaps sometimes incorrect in its facts, if you find a fact you feel is incorrect, please email us at mikesrockquiz at gmail.com. Remember, the facts are facts, the quizzes are made up, and the points don't matter. The Guess Who and BTO. The Guess Who's big hit was American Woman. They formed in Winnipeg, Manitoba in the early 60s and landed on the charts with these eyes. Share the land, no sugar tonight. With Burton Cummings singing lead. Burton Cummings I met after a show one time after I'd introduced him and he was kind of a... Do I say dick on television? Oh, this is not television, it's radio. Oh, it's not radio, it's a podcast. I can say whatever I want. 
Anyway, here is a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. The Guess Who had a hit about their favorite DJ. Was it A. Don Imus, B. Howard Stern, C. Wolfman Jack, D. Dr. Johnny Fever? Let me repeat that. The Guess Who had a hit. Was it A. Don Imus, B. Howard Stern, C. Wolfman Jack, D. Dr. Johnny Fever? The Wolfman! He featured the voice in the Guess Who's top ten single, Clap for the Wolfman. Smith was born in Brooklyn. His dad was, get this, an Episcopal Sunday school teacher and the executive vice president of Financial World. Uh-huh. Yeah. He began working in broadcasting as Dr. Jules. Then he went on to be Roger Gordon in music in good taste. Then Big Smith with the records. In 63, Smith took his act south of the border to XERFAM, a 150,000-watt blowtorch located across the border from Del Rio, Texas. Now, I can tell you this. I worked at a 50,000-watt AM, and farmers miles away could pick up the radio station on their plows. But here's what Smith said about XERF. We had the most powerful signal in North America. Birds dropped dead when they flew too close to the tower. A car driving from New York to L.A. would never lose the signal. In 1973, he appeared as himself on George Lucas's second feature film, American Graffiti. Lucas gave him a fraction of a point, and because of the enormous financial success of American Graffiti, the Wolfman was set for life. He also appeared in several TV shows as the Wolfman, including The Odd Couple, Married with Children, The Hollywood Squares, Oh, my goodness, Paul Lynn was the secret square. <laughs> anyway, he was also the regular announcer of the Midnight Special. At his peak, Wolfman was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. Bachman-Turner Overdrive, founded by the brothers Randy and Robbie Bachman, along with their brother Tim and Fred Turner. Their hits included... Let it ride, you ain't seen nothing yet, taking care of business, and roll on down the highway. While we're in Canada, no doubt we should talk about Russian Nickelback. That's enough. Oh, actually, there are a couple of Rush songs. Uh, Tom Sawyer and Closer to the Heart that I kind of like. And Nickelback's I Want to Be a Rock Star. That's really cute. Other than that, we move on to Neil Young. His dad was a highly acclaimed Canadian sports writer. His mom was a panelist on a Canadian game show. After he moved to L.A. in 1966 to start Buffalo Springfield, California became his primary residence, but he never became an American citizen and still has close ties to Canada. Along with the backing of his band Crazy Horse, he's released critically acclaimed albums like After the Gold Rush, Harvest, Russ Never Sleeps. He was also a part-time member of Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, Marilyn, Pierce, Fenos, Heckle, and Vanzetti, with whom he recorded Deja Vu in 1970. And it seems like I've mentioned this before. I don't know. Anyway, let's face it. Neil Young is eclectic, and he's a very progressive kind of guy, and his music really reflects that folk, rock, country, and all sorts of other things, which leads us up to his nickname. 
Time now for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. What is Neil Young's nickname? A. The Godfather of Grunge B. The Conciliary of Crud C. The Capo of Crapo or D. The Duke of Disco Let me repeat that. What's Neil Young's nickname? A. The Godfather of Grunge B. The Conciliary of Crud C. The Capo of Crapo or D. The Duke of Disco His often distorted electric guitar playing, especially with Crazy Horse, has nicknamed him the Godfather of Grunge and led to his 1995 album Mirrorball with Pearl Jam. Young has received several Grammy and Juno awards. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted him twice in 1995 as a solo and then in 1997 as a member of Buffalo Springfield. Rolling Stone named Young number 34 on the list of the 100 greatest musical artists of all time. 21 of his albums have been certified gold or platinum. And, most importantly, he was awarded the Order of Manitoba in 2006 and made an official Officer of the Order of Canada in 2009. Pretty spiffy. As long as we're talking about Canada, we've got to mention Second City TV, which most of us know is SCTV. It was kind of a takeoff on Saturday Night Live, and a lot of the people who were involved in it came from Toronto's Second City troupe, and it really was successful both in the U.S. and in Canada. The original SCTV cast consisted of John Candy, Joe Flaherty, Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis, and Dave Thomas. Some of the shows that they had, that quote-unquote show, because SCTV, anyway, yeah, included the SCTV News with Earl Camembert, The Days of the Week, the soap opera, late-night movies featuring Monster Chiller Horror Theater, Dialing for Dollars, and Great White North. On now to another little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. In Great White North, who were the featured brothers? A. The Festricks, that would be Jordic and Jorge. B. The Blues Brothers. C. The McKenzie Brothers. D. The Jonas Brothers. Let me repeat that. In Great White North, who were the featured brothers? A. The Festricks. B. The Blues Brothers. C. The McKenzie Brothers. D. The Jonas Brothers. The most popular sketch in the program's eight-year history was Bob and Doug McKenzie's The McKenzie Brothers in Great White North. It was supposed to be a throwaway, but it became the longest-running sketch comedy of SCTV's history. It was developed initially by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, who later went on to play the Beaver. Joni Mitchell. Well, you know, you always think of Joni Mitchell as Laurel Canyon and California and all that, but she is Canadian. With 10 Grammy Awards and introduction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997, Rolling Stone called her one of the great songwriters of all time, with hits like Big Yellow Taxi, Help Me, and Woodstock, albums like Blue and Court and Spark. Mitchell was also a 2023 Gershwin Prize honoree. 
We'll talk more about her when, as I mentioned, we get to Southern California. The band? Yeah, the band is 80% Canadian, and yet recorded one of the most quintessentially American songs, largely due to that other 20%. That would be drummer Levon Helm, who was born and bred in Arkansas. And many critics have noted that it took a bunch of Canadians to write the best song ever about the American Civil War. That would be the night they drove old Dixie down. Between 58 and 63, the group was known as the Hawks, a backup band for rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins. In the mid-60s, they gained recognition by backing Bob Dylan, music from Big Pink, and the 66 concert tour was notable as Dylan's first with an electric band. After leaving Dylan and changing their name to the band, they released several records to critical and popular acclaim, including their debut album, Music from Big Pink in 68. Roger Waters called Music from Big Pink the second most influential record in the history of rock and roll. I imagine one of his was first. Their most popular songs include The Wait, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, and Up on Cripple Creek. Completely different. You'll remember the last time we left John and Marcia, they were in either Oregon, where John was balancing the checkbook. Let's see. Let's listen. Oh, Marcia, I just don't know how you do it. This checkbook doesn't balance again. Now where are you going? I'm going out to the pool to solve all your problems. What? I'm going to float alone. (laughs) Marcia! Be with us again next time when Marcia goes to a fire sale and meets an old flame. This is your announcer saying a programming reminder. As much as we would love to play the tunes referenced here, due to royalty concerns, i.e. we can't afford the fees, I suggest you check them out on YouTube or Google. But if enough of you indicate that you would be willing to subscribe or contribute to this fine podcast, that could change. That is all. Over Lake Erie and back across the border, we arrive in Cleveland, Ohio, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, of all places. Once again, it's time for a little-known and even less-cared-for-fact rock quiz question. Why was Cleveland called the Mistake on the Lake? A, the Browns, B, the Indians, slash Guardians, C, the burning of the Cuyahoga River, and D, all of the above. Why was Cleveland called the mistake on the lake? A, the Browns, B, the Indians, slash Guardians, C, the burning of the Cuyahoga River, and D, All of the above. Yes, the answer is all of the above. Bless their hearts. But they do have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thanks to a groundswell of public support and a $65 million commitment from the city officials. Cleveland was chosen in 1986 as the Hall of Fame's permanent home. Architect Diane Pay 
designed it, and it opened in 1997. It is an extremely cool place to visit. The building contains seven levels, including exhibits on the roots of rock and roll, gospel, blues, rhythm and blues, and folk, country, and bluegrass. It features exhibits on cities that have been a major impact on rock and roll, and we are going to, we are going to visit all of those during these podcasts. The 50s, Sun Records, Hip Hop, the music of the Midwest, rock and roll DJs. <laughs> hmm, I wonder if I'm in it now. Uh, and the many protests against rock and roll. This gallery also has exhibits that focus on individual artists, including the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, and others. It is one of the neatest places I have ever been. They have a theater that features films on American Bandstand, the psychedelic era, memorabilia from artists including Lennon, Eric Clapton, John Sebastian, Jefferson Airplane, and Janis Joplin, as well as items from the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival and Woodstock in 1969. One thing that is very cool that you can check out, the rock roots of your favorite artists. For instance, when I was there, one of the things I did was, was check out the historical antecedents of the Rolling Stones. And they go back all the way to Robert Johnson. And you can hear... In the Stone stuff, Robert Johnson, then you listen to an example of Robert Johnson playing guitar, and you can hear the Rolling Stones. It is extremely cool. Here are some of the artists with four or more songs in the Hall's discography. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Elvis, the Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, Bob Dylan, Zeppelin, Springsteen, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie, James Brown, Ray Charles, The Drifters, Aretha Franklin and Jimi Hendrix, along with Robert Johnson, The Kinks, Bob Marley, The Miracles, Prince, Muddy Waters, The Who, and U2. And here we are with another little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz question. Which American city is north of Canada? A. Portland, Maine. B. Juneau, Alaska, C, Detroit, Michigan, D, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Which American city is north of Canada? A, Portland, Maine, B, Juneau, Alaska, C, Detroit, Michigan, D, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Due to a geographical anomaly, Detroit is actually north of the most southwestern tip of Ontario. So on to Detroit Rock and Motown. Once again, it's time for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. So who founded the city of Detroit? Was it A. Antoine de Cadillac, B. Herman DeSoto, C. Freddie Mercury, D. Nathan Detroit. <laughs> Who founded the city of Detroit? Was it A. Antoine de Cadillac, B. Herman DeSoto, C. Freddie Mercury, D. Nathan Detroit. Actually, it was Cadillac. <laughs> you can tell by Cadillac Square in downtown Detroit. Uh, De Soto was actually, he was a Spanish explorer, and we know who Freddie Mercury and Nathan Detroit are, don't we? (sighs) 
little guys and dolls action there to throw into the rock thing. By the way, Detroit has two of the greatest Coney Islanders in the world, one of which is the Lafayette Coney Island, and the other one is the American Coney Island. They've been there since the dinosaurs ruled the Earth. And now this. You'll remember the last time we left John and Marsha, they were in Tin, Kansas, where Marsha had once again put her foot in her mouth. Let's listen. What's the matter, John? Did I say something wrong? Marsha. John. Be with us again next time when John sees the handwriting on the wall and the arm wrestling on the floor. On to Motown. Motown Records was founded by Barry Gordy Jr. and incorporated into the Motown Record Corporation in 1960. Motown has become a nickname for Detroit, where the label was originally headquartered and my nickname in college. Yes, I was Motown. Motown had an important role. (laughs) I'm not talking about me. Motown had an important role in the racial integration of popular music as an African-American-owned label that achieved crossover success. In the mid-60s, Motown, with a net worth of $61 million dollars, I can't even imagine it in today's terms, achieved 79 records in the top 10 in Billboard Top 100 between 1960 and 1969. Barry Gordy met Smokey Robinson, who at the time was a 17-year-old singer, fronting a band called The Matadors. Recording the group's song Got a Job, which was an answer to Get a Job by the Silhouettes. In 1959, Gordy purchased the property that would become Motown's Hitsville, USA, and converted the main floor into a recording studio and office space. Smokey Robinson became the vice president of the company and later named his daughter Tamala and his son Barry. Within seven years, Motown would occupy seven additional neighboring houses. And if you ever have a chance to get to Detroit, please go by and see Hitsville, USA. It is remarkable. If you have ever done any kind of recording or know anything about recording back in that age, it is remarkable the sound that they put out with that extremely primitive, primitive equipment. Time now for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. Much of the talent came from the streets of Detroit, including two groups named the Primes and the Primettes. Who did these groups eventually become? A. The Miracles and the Marvelettes. B. The Temptations and the Supremes. C. The Four Tops and Martha and the Vandellas. D. Kid Rock and Ted Nugent. Who did these groups eventually become? A. The Miracles and the Marvelettes. B, The Temptations and the Supremes. C, The Four Tops and Martha and the Vandellas. D, Kid Rock and Ted Nugent. I think you'd agree The Temptations and the Supremes are a far better couple of names, especially if you want to become a supergroup, which they did. Time now for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. Which of the following was not a Motown act? A, The Temptations. B, Edwin Starr, C. Jackie Wilson, D. Rare Earth. Which of the following was not a Motown act? A. The Temptations, B. Edwin Starr, C. Jackie Wilson, D. Rare Earth.
I'll bet you thought it was Rare Earth. Uh-uh. Jackie Wilson's first single was released as Reet Petite. It was co-written by future Motown Records founder Barry Gordy Jr., who was another former boxer along with uh, Jackie Wilson. Jackie also teamed up uh, for a while when he was a kid with Levi Stubbs, who became one of the Four Tops, Clyde McFadder, and a bunch of other guys from Detroit who became superstars. Ironically, Gordy borrowed $800 from his family and used the money he earned from the royalties, writing for Wilson, to start his own recording studio, Hitsville, USA, which became Motown. Ironically, Wilson signed with Brunswick Records and was never as big as he could have been had he been with Motown. Wilson's late 1958 signature song, Lonely Teardrops, peaked at number seven, it really established him as an R&B superstar, and his Lonely Teardrops sold over a million in 1967. Wilson was also a regular on TV, making regular appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, American Bandstand, Hullabaloo, and Shindig. And because his stage show was so dynamic, he had the nickname Mr. Excitement. Gee, I thought that was me. Anyway, Rare Earth, on the other hand, had a number of top 40 hits, including remakes of The Temptations, I Know I'm Losing You, and Get Ready. They also had Born to Wander, and I Just Want to Celebrate. One of the really unique things about Rare Earth was they were one of the first white rock acts to be signed by Motown on the new label, which turned out to be the Rare Earth label. Top artists included The Supremes with Diana Ross, The Four Tops, The Jackson Five, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, The Marvelettes, The Miracles, The Temptations, The Contours, Edwin Starr, Martha and the Vandellas, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Jimmy Ruffin, Shorty Long, It Come to Judge, The Originals, and Gladys Knight and the Pips, and I got to see most of them. Four Tops, probably my all-time faves, but I mean, they were all just great. The Motown Sound. In 1971... John Landau wrote a piece in Rolling Stone that the sound consisted of songs with simple structures but sophisticated melodies along with regular use of horns and strings and a style of mixing that relied heavily on electronic limiting and equalizing to give the overall product a distinctive sound particularly effective to be broadcast over AM radio. It cut through the noise of AM radio. Well, it didn't help it going under overpasses, but you get the idea. Motown producers believe steadfastly in the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. The Motown production process has been described as factory-like. The assembly line, an idea Gordy got while working for Ford. The Hitsville studios remained open and active 22 hours a day, and artists would often go on tour for weeks, come back to Detroit to record as many songs as possible, then go on tour again. Artist development was a major part of Motown's operations, Given that many of the talented young artists had been raised in housing projects and lacked the necessary social and dress experience, this Motown department was not only necessary, it created an elegant style and presentation long associated with the label. And now this. You'll remember the last time we left John and Marcia, they were in Linoleum, Florida, where John was repairing the washing machine. Let's listen. I think I've located the problem. Don't tell me, John. It's a dead ringer. Marsha. <laughs> oh, John. 
be with us again next time when Marsha kicks off for the New York Jets. Time now for a little known and even less cared for fact rock quiz question. Which of the following is not a Detroit original? A. Werner's Ginger Ale B. Stroh's Beer C. The Lions D. Bob Seger Let me repeat that, which the following is not a Detroit original. A. Werner's Ginger Ale B. Stroh's Beer C. The Lions D. Bob Seger Big surprise, it's the Lions! <laughs> The inept Detroit Lions. The franchise was founded in Portsmouth, Ohio as the Portsmouth Spartans. They joined the NFL in 1930, but because they couldn't deal with financial issues, they relocated to Detroit in 1934 and have been inept ever since. Actually, there is a wonderful meme that's been out for years. It shows the Lion King talking to his son, and the son says, Dad, what's a Super Bowl? And... The dad replies, I don't know, son. We're Lions. See, the Lions have never been to a Super Bowl. The last time they won anything was in 1958. Yeah, they suck. In addition to Motown, by 1964, teen clubs around Metro Detroit were a hotbed for young and promising garage rock bands. Like Terry Knight in the Pack featuring Don Brewer. The Lords featuring a young Ted Nugent. The Pleasure Seekers with Susie Quattro, The Mushrooms with Glenn Fry, and The Rationals. In 1965, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels had a top ten hit with Jenny Take a Ride. Then again the following year with Devil in the Blue Dress on. Good golly, Miss Molly. Also in 66, Flint's Question Mark and the Mysterians had a number one hit with 96 Tears. In 67, the Woolies had a regional smash hit with Bo Diddley's song, Who Do You Love?, which I still say is the best one. In the late 60s, two well-known high-energy rock bands emerged from Detroit. The MC5, Kick Out the Jams, <clears throat> yeah, and Iggy and the Stooges. Other notable bands from Detroit include Alice Cooper, the Anboy Dukes, Bob Seger, Frigid Pink, SRC, The Frost featuring Dick Wagner, Popcorn Blizzard featuring Meatloaf, Rare Earth, and The Flaming Ember. Much of the music scene during this time was centered around the legendary Grand Ballroom. Now, if you want to go see Motown, The Rooster Tale... On the river, now that was the place to go to see the Motown acts. Pine Knob was also a great place to see some of the great acts of the time. Believe it or not, the Michigan State Fair. I was at the Michigan State Fair watching the Supremes in 69 and marveling at how great they were, even though I'd already seen them, I think, five times. And I'm talking about how amazing the choreography is and stuff, and a guy next to me says, yeah, it really is. And I said, yeah, it really is. Uh, it's amazing. I think, you know, the Motown people are geniuses. And he said, well, thank you. And I looked at him and he goes, hi, I'm Barry Gordy Jr. (laughs) Holy cow, that was really something, you know. Anyway, it was a lot of fun and he moved on and I kept watching. And he became a billionaire. Detroit in the 60s also contributed to the national folk scene with Phil Oakes from Southeast Michigan, who gained a lot of fame in Greenwich Village. Detroit was also home for a few years to the then-unknown Joni Mitchell. During the 70s, several local Metro Detroit acts achieved national prominence, including Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, 
by the way, uh, a shout out to uh, David Teagarden of the Silver Bullet Band. And he was the drummer for many years for Seeger. An old buddy from Tulsa. Ted Nugent. <laughs> Alice Cooper. <laughs> had a beer with him once. Long before he got sober. Uh, Grand Funk, Glenn Fry, the Eagles, and other groups like Brownsville Station and Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. My mama said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. <clears throat> Sorry. And now for something completely different. You'll remember the last time we left John and Marcia, they were in Lion's Maine, where Marcia was taking a cold shower. Let's listen. Marcia, what are you doing? I'm taking a cold shower. Well, put it back before they notice it's missing. Oh, can I have a bathtub then? Oh, Marcia. John. Be with us again next time when John and Marcia walk down the psychopath. As we leave the Motor City, we're going to head on down south to Indiana, then Muscle Shoals, Memphis, and down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico, so to speak. That's for podcast number three of the little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz. And stop. Join us again next time. Until then, I'm Mike McCarthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>